welcome to Story Conversations. We're back. As, we certainly are. Uh, I'm Simon Arrowsmith, and with me, as always, is Susan Griffin. Fantastic. So, today's guest. Uh, today's guest is Saul Jaffe. Saul is a professional storyteller, a learning and development specialist, a people specialist. Um, he's using stories in really interesting ways, and he has a very rich history, very rich and very detailed history right. of story. He, so he, he, His portfolio career was <laughs> part of the conversation. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating conversation. It's it's. It, but it's long. We just wanted to. Avoid, yeah. it's, it's a long conversation. We get we get into it. <laughs> yes, we do. But stick with it because there's so many nuggets. I mean, you know, I, the Talmud being the best-selling book in South Korea. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, life lessons from a Moroccan wrestler. <laughs> you know, being being cut out of a Steven Spielberg movie. I mean, they it, it, it's it's. It's it's almost story conversations with James Joyce. I mean, it, it was just <laughs> it was fascinating. But really, stick with it because, yeah. interestingly enough, as always, there's some really good applications of story, narrative story, and storytelling that are completely relevant to our business audience. Yeah, absolutely. Enjoy. Saul, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we like to start our story conversations by um, asking our guests to share their origin story. Now, we know um, that you studied drama at Exeter in the UK and that your career moved from acting to writing to people development, for lack of a better term. Um, And then there's your work in storytelling, which I know you'll tell us more about. But what, what, how did it all start? What, what drove you? to embrace story and through all your various oh, good. Well, roles. Uh, th- thanks for asking. <laughs> how long do we actually have? Um, it, it, it's lovely to be, to be able to talk about it. I, I, I was thinking, um, you know, about my, my route into storytelling and, and, and it's really convoluted. Um, I think the one time that I was really reassured about my career and how it was or wasn't uh, progressing was when somebody said, oh, you know, your new thing is having a portfolio career. You know, you don't just do one thing. So there was this idea that I... I, Let me write that down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Portfolio. It it, it saved me so many times. Yes, I have a career. It's just called a portfolio career. And it just meant that, that, um, you know, whilst I was doing storytelling, I was adapting uh, that into business for, for training and event development and training programs. I was also working in education, doing doing different things, all you know, not full time, but but on project basis. And I was learning from one area and putting it into the other and applying. So I, I was just learning as I went. But it was sort of eye opening to say, actually, maybe this is the way forward. Maybe, maybe this is what a lot of people are doing, and I'm not I'm not just making up as I go along. But the reality was, you know, I was making up as I went along. Um, but it, but it all starts, you know. I was just thinking that you know maybe the best way is to explain my name. Because, you know, Saul Jaffe is, is really kind of the origin story um, and explains so much because uh, my, my parents called me that and gave me a name that they thought would look good on credits. Uh, my, my, my parents both worked in television and wow. advertising and public relations subsequently, all those wow. sort of things. And they were like, yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, there were some things that, you know, there were some biblical associations and uh, things like that. But, but we, you know, we, we reckoned it needed to look good on credit. So I was like, well, as a kid uh, growing <laughs> up in, in, in Zimbabwe, I'm, I'm a white African Jew. Um, so growing up in Zimbabwe, where I grew up, was um, I, I wanted to be a zoologist. You know, my parents as well as they, they ran the TV station out in, uh, in, in Rhodesia, as it was then. Um, Zimbabwe as it is now. And they went out there to set up the, the television station and, and, and produce shows, but they also made wildlife films. So growing up, I, I was part of that. We would go out on our personal safaris. We would, you know, have cameras. We would be working with camera people. I say I, you know, I was about four, so I wasn't exactly directing anyone. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we, we would, I was used to being up close to animals and, and you know, in, in, the, um, in the bush, really. And so I, I grew up with the love of, you know, thinking that I wanted to pursue this. And then we came to England and um, I fell in love with the James Herriot books. And, uh, oh. you know, zoology over here was not, 
Not exactly the same thing, you know. And, and, and I, I met a, a poet subsequently who was a zoologist, and she said, look, the thing about becoming a poet when you've been a zoologist is it's the only profession where poetry is a promotion. <laughs> you know what I mean? Zoology is so badly paid and right. so badly thought of that, you know, it's, you know even poetry is better, you know, full-time poet. Um, and what happened, really, I, I mean, and, and there are a couple of pivotal moments in my life when, which, which drove me to where I am at the moment because I, I, I didn't really want to be an actor. I did do a lot of drama as a kid. I, I did a lot of sort of mime. I was a huge fan of Marcel Marceau. Um, mm. And, you know, that became very unfashionable. <laughs> you yeah. know, as we grew up, it became associated with certain things. But I was genuinely, genuinely fascinated by him. And subsequently, in the last few years, have since I've learned more about his life during the Second World War and what his characterizations did you know, subsequently, what he was talking about, which he didn't talk about openly, but became known after his death about um, how he'd worked with the resistance and how he'd used mime to keep children quiet and help them oh. play games when they were when he's trying to get them out of uh, France wow. and you know German occupied Nazi occupied France. Wow. So that story became really interesting to me. But, I, you know, I also think I had a little bit of a fear of my voice for, for lots of reasons when I was a kid. And so mime, mime spoke to me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm here all week. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it, it, it really did. It was something that, that um, gave me confidence. And I think there's various reasons I won't go into really bore you with about, about vocal things. But it... I just wasn't a, a confident kid uh, in many ways, but but physically I, I I was, and was assured of certain things. And then my my brother sat me down one day. I was, I was sixteen. I remember it very very clearly. Um, my parents, whenever they had guests come over, my brother and I would hide. Uh, we, we would go away, hide from the parents, hide from the guests, so we didn't have to make small talk. And he was he's older than me, and he was he was a, a, a medical student at that moment. And um, we were chatting, which we really did, really that 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 intimately, unless we were hiding from people. And he said, "Look, you know, you want to be a vet, but I don't think you're going to make it." And I was like, "Oh, way to crush a small boy's dreams, you know? Hey, th yeah. thanks very much. You know, I'm, I'm glad you didn't keep it from me." And he said, "No, no, no. Truthfully." Um, if you want to get into veterinary college in, in the UK, you have to be in the top 2% and you have to fly in chemistry in particular, right? And he said, you and chemistry don't get on. And he was absolutely right. And I was like, oh my God, this was the first time that I thought I wouldn't make it. You know, I had a vision of myself all my life, working with animals, being a zoologist or being a vet. And then he put, you know, he just pinpointed something and went, it's not going to happen for you. And rather than being crushed, he was brilliant in the psychology. Thinking back on it now, he went, look, okay, that's one thing, but you've always done drama. So why don't you think about doing drama at university? If you don't like it, it's easier to switch courses once you're in. But mm. think of it this way, that um, the ratio of women to men um, on drama courses is four to one. And <laughs> even you might have a hope. Right. I mean, these are his words, not mine. Right. So, so uh, know your audience. Here's your first thing. Right. Yeah. Here, know your audience. A heterosexual man on a drama course. I mean, come on. I mean, do you know what I mean? So he, he, yeah. he just kind of went, you're going to fail here, but you could succeed here. Do you know what I mean? Um, right. And and he set it up perfectly. And, and, and honest to God, I, you know, in, in that moment, I there was a moment where I just thought, I know he's right, and I have to admit it, and the faster I admit it to myself, the, the easier it will be for me. But I hadn't had an alternative plan. I hadn't seen myself as doing anything else. And a lot of serendipity happened after that. I, changed, I immediately changed my, my A-levels, our, our advanced UK uh, exams here for 18-year-olds, for and that proceeded going into university. Um, and I was going from sciences, pure sciences, into doing arts, but whilst mm. retaining biology, which I still, which I still love. And still love science. Um, but then I, I had an interview for, for a university, so getting into Exeter. I mean, I remember that changed my life. And that was the moment, you know, we talk about pivotal moments in stories. We mm. talk about pivotal moments in, in life. It's easier to look back on them and, and spot them, you know, once you once, once they yeah. happen to you. But I remember the conversation I had with the, with the lecturer who was interviewing me. 
I remember what we were speaking about. I remember the two questions where I think, yeah, that was it. Those two questions were the moment that I won my place. Um, and they were to do with Commedia dell'arte, which, which I don't know if you know about, but it's a, a master yes. form of, of improvised theatre that he was a specialist in. And we subsequently went on to set up a troupe um, where we were doing, bringing it all up to date to the 20th century. That's how long ago this was. Um, and also he asked me about martial art. I did this really obscure martial art that, that um, I was studying as a, as a teenager. Again, you know, I... I went to school in a, in a, well, should we say a challenging environment, inner city, London comprehensive, even though it was a Jewish school, uh, it was uh, surrounded by a lot of anti-Semitism during the 80s. Mm -hmm. And we used to just get into a lot of fights. We, we, I just spent five oh, years wow. of my life, you know, fighting, not, if not on a, a daily basis, a weekly basis, for being Jewish, for, for spat on, kicked, called all sorts of names. Wow. And, we, and we learned to fight back. So, uh, so there's a lot of stories behind there where I won't go to. But the day, the, the first incident, which was when I saw my brother change, which was, again, will stick with me, a pivotal moment in his life, I saw happen in front of me. And I was like, yep, you've just changed. And he literally, after an encounter where he looked to this guy who was, you know, verbally assaulting us and then spat on us, uh, my brother looked at me and he went, yeah, you're here, and I, and I can't. There's three of them. There's two of us, and you're too small. No, okay. I see these odds are not in our favour. And he just walked down the street, and he literally wiped the spit off his blazer against the wall, rolled his sleeves up, put his collar up, and just went, mm, and walked. And I just thought, there we go. There's his moment of transformation. Wow. He was like, this is how we are going to survive this. So it changed a lot of things. You know, we had to become very streetwise. Coming from Zimbabwe, we, we certainly weren't. We didn't know what to expect. We were in our blazers that basically had, you know, stenciled on the back, kick me, stab me. Um, and we were wearing our, you know, our yarmulkes, our kipot, our, our skull caps. Um, <laughs> we hadn't learned to take them off in the street. We thought it was safe. But um, so, you know, I saw a, a, a pivotal moment in his life. I had one, of, one in my life. But I started to learn martial art which is very different to the ones that my friends were doing and it was all elemental it was all based on nature there was a young Japanese guy who was a master in so many martial arts that by the age of 40 and he combined all his knowledge into creating a new martial art and again that this changed my my life that the movement was um based on elements, it was fluid, it was about evasion, it was about using people's energies. And I say this because, again, that came back into my drama work. It came back into understanding your audience. It came into understanding people's presence mm. and using energy and being, being present. Uh, as a beginner, I remember standing up against, we used to have a, a kind of sparring. It wasn't free sparring again. We used to have a... This European champion, guy from Morocco, who our club was small, based in London, our club was small if, compared to the rest of Euro, the European clubs. And this guy came from Morocco and he was living in London and he didn't have people at his level to spar against. But I came up against him one day. I was like, wow, this guy, Abdul, he is, I know he's a champion. But I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to style this out. I'm going to stand up in front of him. I'm going through our, our routine. He knows, he had to dumb down. So the, the thing about this martial art was, the advanced people had to dumb down to the beginner's levels. They had to use, right. so the thinking martial arts, so you had to be present physically, but you also had to mentally be very dexterous. He a did it. I just had really to do. Interesting. Yeah, th yeah. Thinking, cool. A thinking martial art, that's really interesting. Well, I, I suppose it's like improvisation. You know, mm. in improvisation, you don't just make stuff up, do you? You, you, you have no, to no. riff, you have to listen to the other people, you have yeah. a structure that you know you're going you to know the game yeah. if it all goes wrong yeah. yeah so i see that that was my first sort of improvisation my first <laughs> guy was an adult man i stood up against him if he was bigger than me he was stronger he was more adept i knew he would have to dumb down so that was in my favor and i just looked at him and i i went into you know our, our first fighting stance and i looked at him and went this man is impenetrable I have not started this fight yet, and I, I know I've lost because he just radiated presence. 
You know, he just, he was just like, oh my God, I don't know how to get past him. I, 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 he's like a magnet repelling me before I've even started. So that was my first quick lesson in, in kind of going, well, I'm going to have to give this a go anyway. But just feeling that presence of somebody who's calm, who's ordered, who's radiating courage, experience, mm. knowledge, all these things. And it was a, a, just a, a wonderful moment, you know, before getting beaten up entirely. Um, it, was a, it was a lovely moment. A very nice way, in a very gentlemanly way. Um, yeah. I'm sure that's... I, I, I... I'm sure that was all great training for your time at Shakespeare's Globe. Yeah, the fighting of the I mean, you know, a lot of Shakespeare as far. But you, you, you spent ten years there as a storyteller at the Globe, which is in the South Bank in London. Yes, and you were, you were, you were sharing stories, conducting research. What was that? I mean, tell us a little bit about that time, and tell us about the key things you learned from that role. Again, you know, a lot of serendipity. So just, just round off the, the, the extra conversation was, was you know, I, I, that, that, the, the tutor said to me, you know, is your martial art a softer, hard martial art? And I, I think what one it was when I said, well, look, it, it's neither. It, it, it's mm. hard when it needs to be hard and soft when it needs to be soft. And I think when he was looking at me as a 17-year-old boy, 18-year-old boy, and thinking, oh, this, you know, this is all about power, this is all about fighting. It's like, no, no, you have to adapt to, to mm. the situation. And fast forward to, you know, um, a, an opportunity with a friend of mine to be part of the Globe's Red Not Dead. They had this, they still have the season, Red Not Dead, which is about fairly obscure plays that aren't, aren't staged uh, ah. these days. Um, so Red as an R-E-A-D. R-E-A-D, okay. R-E-A-D, ah. Red Not Dead. And uh, these would be contemporary <laughs> playwrights of Shakespeare's. And they would spend a, a morning rehearsing and reading through play with a cast and then mount it as rehearsed reading. So people would come along in the afternoon and see the results of that morning's work and, mm. and get to see and hear a play that, you know, just wouldn't be staged for lots of reasons, thematically, size of cast or <laughs> yeah. obscurity. Um, and so they said, look, you know, we're thinking that we'd like to use some storytelling to uh, as a as a different way into this to introduce some of the uh, stories that Shakespeare would have used, known, heard, uh, been influenced by, um, and introduce them in, into this strand, so people get an, another idea of uh, an idea about the background that Shakespeare brought with him, stories that he might have known, mm -hmm. and also do it in a different way that's more immediate. So I was working with my friend Danny. Um, we did Il, Il Peccaroni. Uh, which is one version of that that's used in uh, the Merchant of Venice, right? And it's a, a farce. It's it's really very funny. It's <laughs> it's very funny for for nine tenths of it um, before right. the you know before the Jew character comes in at the end and and gives the money. This young man goes out into the world, spends all his his uh, godfather's money, and just in increasingly hilarious ways, just loses it all. Um, so we were tasked with, with, with telling the story and also, you know, being Jewish about how we would um, use the end of that story and how we would tell that. Mm. And um, it was just really interesting. We, we, we said we'd improvise it in, in front of the audience. We knew the, the, the beats of the story. And then we went to the audience and we just said, OK, give us a genre. How would you like this? You, do you want it, you know, do you, do you want it a really rough and bawdy? Do you want it really serious? <laughs> do you want a pastoral comedy? Give us a clue. What, what, how, what genre you wanted? And do you want it to be lighthearted? Do you want us to go for the, for the heavyweight in this? Do you want us to go for the, for the political element? You know, the, the difficult dodgy stuff? What do you want us to do? And they picked something, thankfully, it was more lighthearted. And we just set off telling, telling this tale. So we'd worked together, Danny and I'd worked together a lot. Um, so we knew each other's styles and we, we knew when to let the other person talk and when to listen, when to add and when to let the other person build. Um, and it just went really well. Danny then wrote a best-selling book. <laughs> which was How dare picked. he? Yeah, how dare he, right? <laughs> that ruined my, my, my opportunity. And they were looking to extend this this strand of the storytelling. And Danny said, look, I'm, I've been invited literally overnight to go off on a, on a book tour to, to promote the book. Been a, a very well-received book, uh, sort of underground, not mm. known publicly. And then Richard and Judy, uh, when they were around, were, who were talk show hosts in, in the UK, picked up his book as a summer read and went, you have to read this. 
you know, uh, and he was off. And it was a brilliant book, best-selling, fantastic. But he said, I'm really sorry, I can't carry on the strand with you. And the lady who, who led it at the time said, well, how do you feel about doing it on your own? And I was like, give me a millisecond to think about that. And what was beautiful about working there was very quickly the audiences were responding and we were finding the material. So we went for the kids' audiences, students, academic specialists. I'd be part of the weekend of study for them, get up and tell the stories an improvised story, source material, backgrounds, all sorts of things. They'd, they'd experienced things over two, three days, talking to directors, actors, theorists, academics, and storytellers. <coughs> so we'd be part of that. And then it was going really well, you know, unexpectedly going really well. And basically, they gave me an offer to, to try to fail. And they just said, look, you know, this is, this is going well. Uh, we want you to push your storytelling. Just push how you do it, what you do, when you do it. And they gave me carte blanche, really, to, to keep expanding, keep expanding. And, I, you know, I tried everything in terms of, you know, the things really outside my comfort zone, like shadow puppetry and then bringing in musicians to kind of work with and doing it in different settings. And the most beautiful one was when we, we, we ended up in the Sam, Wanawa, Sam Wanamaker, which is the indoor winter. The indoor, fit, yeah. Candlelit, working with a, a multi-instrumentalist, Anshuman Biswas, who's just brilliant. He's singing a Bengali romance song. I'm telling the story of Pyramus and Thisbe. We're melding the two together. He's playing on various instruments that are all peculiar and wonderful. And we were just like, wow, I don't think this space has seen anything like this before. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was just a gift, you know. So more and more is invited to de develop and research those stories. So I found out a lot of things. I, I found out that, you know, you can use the same story um, and tell it to the same audiences, uh, to, to different audiences. But you obviously you have to find a way to weight the story. Who are you talking to? What will they understand? What? how can you push them outside the comfort zones what will they appreciate what's really going to be difficult what how you know how you might shoot yourself in the foot if you if you if you push it too far um and what's not going to work but beyond that it introduced me to a whole array of different stories uh source material and and then start I, i'm sure as you do is then quiz these stories, you know, are they relevant for today? What was yeah. it that made them relevant at the time? What elements can we use to teach, to entertain, to relearn, to question our values now, to just reflect ourselves in, you know, and, and to yeah. kind of mirror. And, and all those things came up and I, I think I just started trying to research that as best I could for myself and my own interest of why we tell stories, how we tell stories, when does it work most engagingly? Oddly, the, you know, people talk about campfires and things and being drawn around it. And yet, I, I find that the hardest environment to be in is, uh, is, is outdoors, you know, storytelling, <laughs> unless it's a very concentrated, small setting. Um, I find it just, it, it's just one of the biggest challenges. Having done a lot of outdoor theatre, you know, very yeah. different. Um, so yeah, so I, I you know, I, I learned a, a lot of things. Um, the, the well, you thing, know, it's, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I was just gonna say the one thing that, that I really wanted to do that I never get a, got a chance to do really was to wire myself up with like a, an EEG cap and get members of the audiences <laughs> wired up as well. Cause I, 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 I believe that beyond body language and language, I think there is a sort of this, connection between audiences where we start synchronizing heartbeats breathing uh, rates yeah, yeah. you know and there are there are studies that show that with with eg that show that audience members or listeners to stories finish the story before the teller has actually vocalized it because they know that they know the feeling they know the direction it's headed in they're so familiar yes. with the shape of a story that they kind of emotionally there before it's even got to that bit, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, it's it, brilliant. And, and, and so there's two things about that. I've had a, I've, I'm leading some workshops at the moment in, in the corporate world, and people are saying, but so what do you think about Game of Thrones? Because, you know, we're so used to following heroes and storylines. Mm. And hey, spoiler alert, um, they can abruptly end because yeah. people suddenly get murdered. And you're like, 
oh, well, what do we do now? Because they were our favourite. We thought they were... And like I say, you're plotting ahead where you're anticipating. And this is brilliant. And so you, I use that a lot. I have to say this is my default mechanism. I try to use humour a lot, particularly when I'm building up to, to something tragic. And just give an audience a moment to release before you get to the really strong, strong moment of, of tragedy. And... Um, it's pointing that out sometimes, it's pointing that out. We're coming to the, the, the really tragic part, people, and if only this had happened, give them a moment to breathe and laugh and then take them somewhere really dark. And I find mm. that that hype to the drop gives you that anticipation. We know what the end is. Interrupting that anticipation with something funny, which they didn't expect at that point, and then going somewhere dark and, and, and a bit more dangerous, um, sort of magnifies the impact of that story, story ending. Um. I find this fascinating, and you know, one of our guests on season one, Dave McCoggan, who's a, a former advertising guy in Asia, he started his his origin story started as a storyteller for children in a public uh -huh. library system, and he talked about you know the story stays the same, you modify how you tell it based on knowing your audience. But what strikes me about your work, and you started out telling us. Know, know your audience, but what it feels to me like you've done, you know your audience, but you are, you've been relentless in terms of finding a different twist, not giving the audience what they expect, but giving the audience this rich, almost counterintuitive way of interpreting a story, which is kind of the, I, I mean, the flip of knowing your audience and oh, I'm going to tell the story the way the audience expects to get it. Mm. I think that's brilliant. Um, and it also feels to me like you've, you've invested so much in the idea of telling the stories, keeping them alive, shaping them differently, bringing in other storytellers. I, so how did you then make the jump from the globe to what you're doing now? So I, I think it was, um, like I say, if I, if I go back to the kind of idea of a portfolio career, is that rather than a, a linear progression of one thing <clears> and <throat> the other than the other, it, it was sort of simultaneous. Um, when I started working in business, um, we were working under this idea of experience engineering, that, you know, we moved into the experience economy and one of the guys that we were working with coined this phrase uh, and trademarked it um, as experience engineering. And when we really looked at the depths of it, I just thought, well, this is everything I know from drama. This is what I've been doing for three years at, at, at drama at, at university. Our course was entirely physical. It was all experiential and heuristic. Now, heuristics seems to be used in a different way these days in terms of bias. But at the time when I heard it for the first time, um, they said that heuristic was, was meaning self-led learning. So they mm -hmm. give you a project idea, they give you a starting point and went, you go as far as you dare with this, you go where you want and we're not going to stop you. And that's where I found I, I thrived the most. You know, I would just go and go, right, okay, if, if, if I've got all these resources to do anything with, right, go, let's, let's see where it takes me. And... I, th I think in, in many ways that led me to just exploring different ways. And when it came into the, the, the corporate world, I just went, oh, it's exactly the same as what I've been doing. It's just a different audience and they have different needs and different expectations. I just have to make myself sound smarter. <laughs> I just have to be a bit more serious, you know, when it comes to selling stuff. And I have to have the courage of my convictions and not throw away what I know to be true for my theatre work in terms of reaching audiences and even in marketing, you know, marketing is not a background I, I ever chose to go into and, and, I, and I still don't. Um, but I've had to do, you know, audience segmentation stuff. And you had to look at, you know, the, these people have different requirements. And what, who are these different audiences for this product? And you can go back to the theatre routes and go, well, actually, you know, our saying is bums on seats. How are you going to sell this to people? You know, you, you don't get an audience without making it relevant to them. Right. And we never made work where we expected an audience to come to us. 
we were of mm. the mind that theatre should serve everyone and we would make stuff that we would take out into the community, we would take out into different audiences abroad, we'd take out into uh, unusual spaces. So we worked everywhere. But it meant that actually I had a knowledge of, you know, street theatre versus working in a church hall versus working in schools when the dinner ladies are coming in and clattering <laughs> and doing stuff while you're in the middle of your best soliloquy ever. Um, <laughs> and you just realise that you've still got to draw the attention. You've still got to work with all these things, obstacles in your way. And I think that that really helped within the corporate world, which was understanding that you know, I've heard it said a lot. I'm not sure how, how true it is, but it's truer for some companies than others and people than others. But there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear of failure, of doing things yeah. wrong, of, of yeah. being seen to be stupid if you if you get people who are a bit too perceived as being too outlandish to come in and do something, you know, that needs to be done within an organization. But then you realize it's about trust. Oh. And how do you get gain trust? And sometimes that's telling your stories. And they are how you earned your stripes, where it's gone wrong for you, where you can kind of just hold your hand up and say, hey, I've done this wrong, but I realise why I did it wrong and I haven't done it wrong again. Um, and looking at your audience and really trying to understand what they want from you, not what you want to give them. Yeah, I mean, that that corporate work, you and I have, have been lucky yes. enough to work together and with one of our other previous guests in season one, Jeremy Sturt, Let's, I mean, let's the less said about that, lucky. yeah, we've been less, lucky. <laughs> the less said about that, the better. I'm sure if he's listening, he understands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I personally um, was lucky enough to spend the day with you, where you coached me on telling stories. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the actual creation, the crafting of stories, really comfortable, really confident in, and well rehearsed. But the actual retelling of a story, the vocalizing of a story, the verbalizing of a story, as it were, and the physicality that comes with. I got a, a chance to work with you, and I remember the it really stuck with me and I do pass this on to people that I work with um, is this importance we're talking about 10 years ago now and this was um, was the importance sure. of, conne <laughs> of connecting to an audience in that authentic and non-performed way in that voice mm. that doesn't feel like it's overly can, polished can I sign up for that question, <laughs> <please>? <laughs> nonsense wow. Susan you've got a very natural start I mean you know why do why I mean I, I I think we know why it's important, but mm. you know why do you think it's important to have that authentic voice? And have you got any examples of people who do it well, people who do it not so well? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I yes, lot yes to, to to your question, yes, 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 <laughs> and and look, and also don't don't get me wrong, it's it's also lovely to talk to people because I I don't think there's one size fits fit all. That is not mm. my approach. I think people, individuals have to learn their own art. You can give people, like I was given, an opportunity to explore your art. Mm. Here's your resources. You go make you better. And yes, we'll give you some guidelines and some feedback. But the craft you can give people. And, yeah. you know, I, I think I, what I try to work on is craft and then say to people, but you're not me. You know, you're not me. Yeah. And you need to do it your way. And I, I'm not you. And I, I've told people to do things that I don't do. And I'm the worst for not doing it but I also know who I am and what I'm comfortable doing and sometimes I need to push myself out of my comfort zone and sometimes I'm, I'm happier within it um, but I give people that invitation hopefully to explore that for themselves and then be harsh when it's like no 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 that's not your craft you mm -hmm. haven't prepared you haven't done the groundwork you haven't done what we said and you haven't thought about your audience now now I, I will say three things it's it's me us and the space that's all that's happening yeah. So this is what I love about live theatre and why, why I found it difficult during lockdown to, to be on Zoom because you, I, I rely on feedback all the time. So when I'm in front of an audience, like storytelling in particular or improvising, one, one, one of my favourite things to do at, at, at the Globe was to take audience suggestions. Who, what, where, right? So you ask for a character, dest, um, a situation, what they're doing. And then with a, with a musician, we would just make up a story from the audience's uh, perspective uh, suggestions and we were just trying to make something work right so it's brilliant you could fail at every step <laughs> and, and it's a really lovely lovely craft because you realize you do have to make a certain amount of sense and a certain amount of nonsense to to make it not look like you've crafted it beforehand and and to really be original and the hardest thing that i have to say and it, it honestly to that simon is, is is that as an actor you you 
you're taught, you know, to have your voice and to be able to project and to kind of <laughs> do your coming to theatre in know you soon voice and, you know, to have all these range of characters and get you through. But when I was studying, again, my tutor said to me, look, it isn't about that. It isn't about putting on accents and putting on characters. It's about stripping away any barrier between you and the audience. It mm. is about you embodying this character, yes, but stripping away any barrier between you and the audience to connect with them. And as much as you can practice all your best voices, the first time I got into theatrical storytelling, it was like, you had to neutralize your voice. You had mm. to find a way of making your voice interesting and engaging without coloring it. And it comes from, from Mike Alfred's uh, in particular and his approach to storytelling and theater, which was you have to leave it to the audience. You have to leave space and you yeah. have to. So, you know, that phrase of, you know, imagine a castle, the most beautiful castle you've ever seen. Right. Let's go there. Let's open the door. Let's go in. You're there already. I don't have to tell you about turrets and princesses yeah. and what the windows look like. I leave that to you. The same way that I, I might say to somebody, you know, when I was younger, I had a geography teacher who and I stopped and go, OK, tell me about your geography teacher. That image that came into your head right then, tell me about what is he or she wearing, how old they are, do they smoke a pipe, do they have other things? Oh, he smoked, he smoked a pipe, all right, and drank every lunchtime because we had him just after. And it was just like, like all, my geography teacher memory is sweat, smoke and beer. That's that's the image. <laughs> Sorry, you know I, we, we I digress. I you for a day. I mean, I, I was sorely tempted as well. <laughs> But I mean, like, there's certain things that we go to. It's always like yeah. an archetypal character. But but again, it was like, look, that's how quickly we fill in the blanks. Mm. You know, yeah. that's how quickly. And, and I, I can ask you to kind of go, right, even before I finish one sentence, describe it. Describe what you think. What are you thinking? How is yours different? Why are they different? And there's a power in, in remembering that. But, but also, you know, it, it, there were two things. We had to look at the audience. We had to meet their eyes in a way that they didn't find... Um, disturbing or threatening. We had to use neutral voices. We barely spoke to each other like, you know, eye contact on stage. And something very revealing about that, which is one, you have to connect with your audience all the time. Two, if there's a line you don't own, and in theatre craft, I mean by owning, you just don't understand it, you don't believe it, you don't feel it, and you try to speak that to an audience member, wow, they will see through you straight away. And you mm. will just be exposed for all the wrong reasons on, on stage. And so it became really important to come talk to these to, to everybody on stage. And this non-performed voice, I think, allows other people to latch on the, to the thing that's important for them. And yeah. it means there's no falseness and there's no barrier between you and them. Yes, of course, there's moments where you want to interject and you want to change the pace. You want to add a little bit of color. You want to add a little bit of texture. Um, but my, my, <laughs> my favorite moment, it was the first time I, I went sort of publicly after the Globe and I was invited to be part of um, Storytelling Cafe. They've got lots of venues around, around, around England and they, they, they tell for adults. And this guy hadn't seen me, he'd been recommended me. A lovely man called Gray, who's just an absolute legend. And he just went, looks all, I, I don't usually invite actors to tell stories because I find that they just try to act their way through and not tell the story. So I hope you don't do that. And then he went on, and ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce <laughs> like, I was just giggling to myself, but way, way to introduce me before you've introduced me, right? And I just nice. had to come on stage and just say, look, Graham's just said this to me. He just said, look, you know, I, I don't usually go, I say, thanks for that. And it's about kind of breaking down some of those barriers and just acknowledging some of the stuff that hidden conversation that people feel what, what, what's happened there. And rather than have it play on my mind, it's like, I'm going to bring this out to the open. I'm going to play with the audience and I'm going to see how they respond. And therefore that gives me a sense of what I can do with them that evening. Mm. It's a little bit about like stand-up comedy, I think really great stand-up comedians. Um, but that non-performed voice, I think he was worried that I was going to go, I'm going to do an old lady voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I'm going to do my wizard. You know, it's, just, it's like it's not. Yeah. You can just use something to give the sense and then yeah. move on. And then you're letting the audience do the work. Now, I'm still not I mean, great at that. Believe you me. Your audience would be a bit confused because your old lady voice and your wizard sound incredibly similar. Exactly the same. This is why he was hoping I wouldn't do characters. It's an old lady wizard. I mean, oh, okay. Wizard, yes. <laughs> yeah, wizard. yeah. Fair, Look at you with the conformity there. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it... yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. So, so it does um, well not. I don't know. So I, I'm fascinated by, you know, your your early love of science and, you know, your, your aspiration to be a zoologist, a mm. veterinarian, 
Um, you've obviously applied storytelling in the sort of business training and people development, but but you've also applied storytelling in areas around health, both mental health, physical health, you know, which feels to me like it harkens back to your your passion for science, but is it just another area to apply your passion for story? What Talk to us a little bit about, you know, no. story work, health, health, story work. How did, how did that come about? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting observation, but perhaps I, I, I haven't looked at it like that. Um, and I think I'm also, you know, my mind's gone back to the, the question that I just answered very glibly, like going, I don't know who, who does, who does the, the authentic voice well. But I'm, sure <laughs> we're, we're, I'm sure there are lots of, you know, Barack Obama and things like that compared to Boris Johnson, you know, come to mind. But um, let's, let's skip on shortly. I'm sure there'll be people who, who feel that they do it well that I, I can think of publicly at the moment. Sorry, so, as I waffle. Um, <laughs> so health. So again, going back to Exeter, um, we worked very physically. We did a lot of Eastern practice by, by Eastern disciplines. I, I suppose I'm, I mean like yoga, Tai Chi, Shiatsu, a very physical work coming out of um, Poland, like people working with Jerzy Gutowski. So we were, you know, we were working physically and also our influences like you know, Etienne de Croux, who was a, a French mime artist, but corporeal versus illusionistic. Um, and then people went into sort of like Jacques Lecoq, who's, who's a French practitioner as well with physical theatre. So we were also trying to stay healthy, right? We were, we were doing a lot of physical work every day. And somebody introduced me to shiatsu during the, the point of the, they were shiatsu practitioners. Shiatsu basically means a uh, finger pressure and it's a, a body therapy, Japanese mm. uh, body therapy that also uses traditional Chinese medicine, about energy lines, pressure points to, to rebalance the body. And it's odd because I cannot remember the specific moment that it happened, but it really, really influenced me. It had a big impact on, on my well-being when I was practicing um, the, the stretches that he showed us. Um, and they, they really helped me physically. And so I decided after university that I, I would study shiatsu and I became a shiatsu practitioner for a while, thinking, well, you know, usually I take my hands with me wherever I go. They, they tend to be there. So if anybody needs help or something, I can, I can be on tour. I can still practice shiatsu. And for a while that worked. And then I realized that as you build up people who really do need help, who are quite ill in one way or another, um, you have to be there. You have to be stable. You have to be providing them support throughout. And I was like, well, I'm going on tour as an actor and maybe I can't sustain that. But that idea of energy balances, of systems that, that are in, in balance, it, it's also in the corporate world. You know, we always hear the stuff of systems in balance, mm. um, the, the head versus the heart, the, the, the strategic versus the, the, the soft skills, the hard skills, soft skills. But, you know, and I'm like, hang on, but this sounds very much like Eastern philosophy. And I've applied it, you know, that there are organ systems in traditional Chinese medicine where they tell you, you know, in the afternoon, this particular organ is going to be at the forefront. This is where everyone's going to be dozing off. You know, you hit your water element at three o'clock, people are snoozing people. Eleven o'clock, people's brain energies are, are dropped out as the, as the heart energy drops away. Um, you've used up, your brain's used up all its sugars. And that's why people will want a, a mid-morning break. They will go for something sweet. So if you can preempt these moments and, and feed people air, good food, breaks, into before you've even set up what your training program is then i was like oh that's how i started thinking um and i've i've gone off subject completely sorry susan no not really you haven't no it's fascinating because what you've invested in your storytelling yeah is these deep this this deep practice and investigation of of things beyond storytelling and yeah. so you bring science you bring knowledge of other eastern religions you bring knowledge of the body to your storytelling and i'm sure you're not drawing on those in every engagement mm. but you have things to draw on 
regardless of the environment in which a story yeah. is happening. So, so sorry, thank you for the cue again, because it, because I started um, with the health. I had, again had an interest in, in shiatsu and Eastern approaches to medicine, um, into listening to people and, and, you know, not looking at symptoms, you're looking at causes. And again, this went back into the roots of storytelling and uh, my practice at Exeter, which was like the, the, the origins of, of drama is what, you know, one route going into medicine and one route going into entertainment. The, mm. the, the shaman or the, 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 the person who will be in front of the, the communal spiritual leader might have to heal the group by doing a performance, by, by showing what their internal journey was to find the power animal or power animal or sacred object that meant something to them, but also guide them physically across landscapes to find shelter and food and safety. All those, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of, of, of needs, you know, mm-hmm. was, was kind of the shaman, you know. So if you're not trusted at the front, if you don't have the knowledge and if you are, are, are shamming it, where, where, where the origin of the word sham came from, um, if you're making it up, people see through you because you, you, your, your people will, will perish. So unless you have the experience to kind of stand up in front of people and lead them truthfully, you're, you're, you're not going to survive. And I you know, glibly say that in the corporate world as well. But I, I was interested in, in, in health and its applications and its understanding of how we breathe and live day to day. Um, and it happened that my mother became very ill. Uh, which she, was, she was dying. And she was in hospital, and she she uh, she was an incredible woman. So many things about her that we, we we could talk about. But um, she she was diagnosed late with with cancer, you know, at stage five. But she fought and fought and fought, and and everything in in her life was way markers and and points in in the sand. This mm-hmm. this family thing, right? A wedding, a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, a, a birth of a child. There were things that kept her going. I want to be there for this. I want to be. So she had this really strong will. And when it came to the point where we, we knew it wasn't going to go further, she was in hospital and the pain was increasing and she was on more, more morphine, which meant she, she was coming in and out. But I, we used to just talk to her, whether she was conscious or not. I just always believed she's present at some level, the voice she will hear, she will respond, we will hold her hand. And I think the worst thing for me was not when she was sort of dozing and in and out of consciousness, was when there was an infection and we had to wear rubber gloves, these latex gloves. And I, that was when it broke me a little bit because I knew that when I held her hand, then she would know there was a barrier between our hands and then she would know something was wrong. And that's the point. It wasn't the voice, it wasn't the speaking. It was that moment of touch when I went, now she's going to know something's mm-hmm. something else has happened. It's fascinating, you know. You say that well, the two things there: the, the story about your mother, and the fact that you you know speaking to her, telling her stories about what's happened in your day and what's happened in the family around, is another thing to that keeps that person connected to to you through that. You know, it's the same as the connection between speaker and audience. But then the idea again with the shaman and the fact that medicine. Um, it could you know, it could be physical medicine it could be mental medicine and mental medicine really is about how do we retell our story to become more physically m- mentally healthy the other thing that strikes me is that you know when you, when you were talking about health about the relationship between story and spirituality and recently we had um on this series um the reverend uh, Micah Busey as a guest and he was sharing with us um the jewish concept of midrach is that I said that right? Midrash? Yeah, Midrash. Midrash. Yeah. Midrash. You know, in, interpreting faith texts as allegory, metaphor, you know, mm. wandering around the backstory Argument. of characters. <laughs> Argument. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's great, yeah. Good, I, and I know that your faith, you talked about your faith earlier, and you talked about being your experience of being Jewish in London, and, and, and that's, uh, again, fascinating, harrowing, fascinating. And, what, and sadly quite relevant today. Yeah, to today. yeah, absolutely. Still too relevant. Um, yeah. and, but I know that your faith is something you've returned to in recent years. And, you know, so I'm, I'm curious about the role that stories have played in your spiritual journey. Yeah, I, again, you know, it's, it's something that I suppose I hadn't considered. Um, and I suppose that I, I take a lot of things for granted um, because I grew up with them and they were part of my, my, my life. Um, 
you know, when you're growing up uh, Jewish and uh, you go to synagogue, you, you, you're surrounded by stories. You're surrounded by gossip. You're surrounded by chat. You're surrounded by people talking about Spurs, uh, you know, football <laughs> and business, you know. And, and those are sometimes the things that really annoyed me. I, I, I used to go to, to synagogue for, to, to be spiritual and, and, and to seek a spiritual path. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, that the gossip was, was, you got there was really important as well. You know, I, I, nobody educates you that actually these places where we commune are where people really tell the, the, their, their innermost stories. And actually, those are the things that bind us together. And uh, as a kid, kind of being a bit holier than now, forgive the expression, um, looking for a spiritual pathway, I used to sort of, you know, go, you know I'm, I'm trying to listen here, people. Um, but you're sort of uh, observing, you know, you're, you're observing. <laughs> but it does remind me, I, I went for the, to, to audition for Spielberg for a film that was a very, if I can say this, people knew what the film was. They weren't meant to know what they were auditioning for. But anyway, I went along and um, uh, they were looking for a part of a, a, a rabbi who would be a, f a field chaplain, pot potentially, in this film. It did, didn't make it in the final cut. Um, so anyway, I go into audition and um, I'm standing there, but there's two texts they'll ask me to read. And um, I, I, I gend up on both of them, just make sure that, that they're just they're, they're basic tests, that it's texts that everybody knows. I thought, yeah, it's fine, I've, I've got those under my belt. And um, anyway, we did the, the, the audition. And she went, so what's happened? Where, where, where are all the rabbis at this time of year? I went, well, how do you mean? She said, well, we can't get hold of any rabbis. I went, well, uh, it was before um, Jewish New Year. Um, and two weeks beforehand, there was, a, there was a conference. So all the rabbis were at this conference and uh, they weren't affected. And I turned around and went, what do you mean? You're trying to get hold of rabbis. You can't get hold of them. Oh, she said, we're, oh, there's a, a whole gamut of rabbis we normally uh, call on for, the, for, for these roles. I was like, what? Where even my rabbi is taking acting roles from me. I mean, what, what, what do I do? Like, I, I don't, on, you know, on a Saturday, I don't get up on the bimmer on the raised platform and push him off and say, hang on, now it's my turn. You've had your 10 minutes. Get off. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, great. Even the rabbis are, you know, have their moments in films. Um, but so, you know, there, there, there's a performance ele element in, in Judaism. You know, the, the sermon, we, we, we have a different layout in, in, in our synagogues normally. Um, but there is a moment of the, the race platform and, and rabbis tend to be really great speakers. But the, the shul that I'm at, the synagogue I'm at, um, it, it's, it's just a, a wonderful man who, who just includes everyone. It's just about humanity, about, you know, telling stories that bind people and bring us together okay. and find commonality, not about the divisiveness and, and finding our common ground and, and, and asking people to enter into that debate. So there's that side of it, which is, is that there is the, you know, the, 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 the themes of the, the, the Jewish laws as well and, and the kind of things that, that, that bind us as a religion. But I, I think I went through two stages. I went through one of potentially being very religious, the awe of uh, understanding um, the text in a deeper way and reading like things like Midrash and, and, and seeing the stories and the commentaries that come up and people's thinking, you know, I think um, the Talmud and other uh, Jewish series of, of books and writings is the biggest selling book in South Korea. And apparently um, the, the South Koreans, uh, as I understand it, have said, well, look, you know, this, this group of people, they're known for being intelligent. They're known for being deep thinkers. They're known for being successful at, at things. What is it that we can learn from them? And apparently the Talmud is something they've turned to and, you know, re really uh, read quite commonly to find wow. out what is it. And, and it's all about debate. It's all about different sides of stories, about different strands. Right. It's about finding your, right. route, your route through it. And I turned away from it. I very, I went Eastern. I went away from it. I lost my, my, my pathway with it for, for various reasons, but just very simple ones. Um, and I found it through drama. You know, I really found through yeah. performance, through Eastern philosophies, and then through, through marriage and various things that, uh, you know, my wife was like, hey, you know, we're going to have to be more religious if we're going to do this properly. And I was like, do you really? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it, it meant that certain things had changed. And actually, I find that sometimes, you know, limitation gives you, if you've got something to push against, you've got a deeper value. If, if you mm. push against something, it's for reason and makes you realize what you stand for. And I think right. that's one of my biggest learnings from that is that sometimes I, I, I don't believe in things and that's okay. But then sometimes I have to justify it. And I think that's maybe where, you know, the stories come from. They kind of go, do you believe that? If you don't believe that, how, how can you reinterpret that? And what part of it do you believe? Yeah, great. Well, Saul, thank you so much. And we could go on forever. Um, I usually but do. But 
He, 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 can, he can go up forever. <laughs> oh, my God. We're twins separated. separated. Fortunately, he's very entertaining, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know? <laughs> twins separated it. Bring him to answer the question. But the, the last question we always ask our guests um, is if you had a favorite story. I think the Spielberg story almost <laughs> makes it. But if you had a favorite story, what would it be? I, I tell you that, that, that you know, because it's, it's a Jewish thing as well. You know, there's three answers to that. Um, there is, I, 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 I love, you know, I do love uh, the King Midas. I love the King Midas because uh, it's so prevalent in uh, Shakespeare. There's, there's two parts of it that I didn't realise were joined. I think lots of people don't realise that the, the two, they might know the two separate parts. They don't know that they're, they're, they're part of the same story. Uh, but it leads into uh, Bottom being an ass in, in Midsummer Night's Dream. Is the second part of, of King Midas, what happens to him. So I love telling that one. Um, there's a really, you know, one very profound one about a mother bird who wants to protect her, her chicks and only has the strength to to fly one when a storm comes. She, she, she builds a, a, you know, a, a nest far away from anywhere that could be, you know, threatened. But the storm comes, you know, at, at sea where she's built in the middle of a, on a craggy cliff and she only has uh, strength to fly one child to safety and of course there's three the obvious rule of threes in this and she's flying she's flying she's flying and, and she she realizes that um she can only make the the journey fully once and she says to her child he says look you know my child you you, you are helpless i as your mother i i look after you i protect you i serve you i clean you i feed you tell me you know when i'm older will you do the same for me and you know, the chick is held in her clutches. He's looking at the storm brewing, the wild waves. The spray is coming up to meet them. The, the air is buffeting them. And they, he's like, yes, yes, of course I'll do it for you, mother. You know, of course I'll, yeah, I will. I'll look after you. You do everything for me. I'll do everything for you. And she flies and she thinks for a bit and she says, you know, you don't, you're not telling the truth. And I'm sorry for this. I can't fly you any longer. And she lets go. And the child, chick, is swallowed by the waves and she flies back for the second child and she's flying 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 and she asks the same question you know i do everything for you i look after you i i nurture you i, I clean you i feed you I, I i keep you safe when i'm old will you do the same for me and again he sees the waves he feels the wind he's, he knows what peril he's in and he says yes, of mother, mother, whatever he said he was wrong yes i will i will i will look after you whatever he, he obviously said no i will look after you of course i will and she's flying and she's losing strength and she says look you don't tell the truth and for this I can carry you no longer and so the child is swallowed by the waves as well and she flies back and it's the last choice right I mean you know what's going to happen now because she's either going to be on her own this is going to be a really sad ending or this guy's kind of going to come up with something different so she picks up the last chick and she's, she's battling through the wind, which is growing stronger now. And she's trying to head for land. She's trying to head for the light. And the storm's brewing and brewing. And it's looking like neither of them will make it. And she says to this chick, she says, look, I do everything for you. I know to you. I feed you. I do. Tell me, when I'm old, will you do for me as I do for you now? And the chick looks down at the waves, feels the wind buffeting them, looks to how far away the land is, and can feel the end in sight. And he says, Mother, I understand that you look after me. I understand that you take care of me. I understand that I'm helpless and I'm reliant on you for everything. But no, when I'm older, I can't promise that I will look after you. But I do promise you something, that when I have children of my own, I will take care of them as you take care of me now. I'll look after you, I'll look after them, I will feed them, I will clothe them, and I will protect them. And that, I can promise you. And the mother bird, you know, she's battling against the wind, feels it, she sees, sees this as a last attempt, and she thinks, she says, you know, my child, you speak the, the truth. Come, let us fly together. Let us fly to land and into the light. Oh. And off they go. And that, you know, it's a happy ending for all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. The other one's about a happy woodcutter who, you know, is a, 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 a thing about always finding happiness in whatever you do. Okay. But, but the mother one, you know, is, is 
there's this there's that sense again just because it's actually quite a simple story um mm. there's the rule of three you know it's always about that they're always about the youngest child um and what they represent so you can go deeper into it in, in judaism there's something called pardes there's there's four levels of storytelling one is the very obvious then there's the allegory then there's the numerical values and then there's the, the abstract spiritual stuff so you can go into it whatever level you like. And I think for a really good story, they, they are the simplest. And they leave space for you to decide what those birds represent, what the relationship is with the mother, and, and truth in, in danger, truth in the face of, of danger and, and being able to, you know, speak it. Yeah. I think that's what's, you know, what's fascinating about that is the meaning of the story is absolutely clear. The way you, as an individual, um, interpret it and take it on in terms of the meaning in, in the context of your own life is the thing that changes, and that's brilliant. Yeah. I should be kinder to my kids. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it! I'm, I'm learning this a bit too late. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much, thank Saul. You. Hey, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for putting up with the waffle. You know, I'm pretty sure oh, there's no, lots of that's... questions I didn't answer there, but uh, <laughs> it's been fun. I'm grateful for for having the chance to, to talk about it. It's a really good. Yeah. Lovely, lovely to see you and thanks for joining us thank, thank you. you thank you too Susan thank you lovely to meet you oh <laughs> well we warned you yeah <laughs> no I mean honestly you know somebody with a life experience like Saul um, was bound to have amazing stories to tell and yeah. in fact he, he did um, I, one of the key takeaways for me was and again, we've heard this time and time again, mm. the importance of backstory. And, you know, he, he talked about his experiences becoming a performer, becoming an actor, and he referenced Marcel Marceau. Okay? Yes. But then he told Marcel Marceau's backstory in mm. the French Resistance. Mm. And, you know, I, I will never look at my the same way again you know, <laughs> because it it was so impactful yeah and that that importance of backstory um you know even even the most kind of basic brand story can be given meaning and the the brand can have have a real impact if you understand some of the backstory whether it's That's... the origin story the yeah you know, whatever. I, I just context. love that idea of backs. Yeah. Yeah, it's context. Yeah. It's, and we're curious, aren't we? We, we? we want to know, how did this come about? How did you come up with that idea? Where, where, did you, where do you come from? I think it's always really fascinating. Right. I think another point for me was very similar to Dave McCoggan's um, stories about telling stories for kids and adults, for example, is that, you know, you, you can't tell the story the same way for every audience you've got different audiences you've got to tell the story differently and Saul talking about you know red not dead sessions at the globe uh, we see this with our business clients it's it's really really important to mix it up and change your approach depending on what your audience needs to hear where are you focusing right. the information right and how are you telling it you and know. and the venue you know when he talked about <laughs> it's different yeah. to tell stories in an outdoor venue than it mm. is in an indoor venue that's so basic but we find with our clients that they forget that if you're on a zoom call versus <laughs> on a yeah you know conference stage you gotta so... you gotta know the audience and you gotta tell the story differently i mean yeah i mean even even the difference you know most most of our clients aren't speaking at conferences they're speaking to rooms of 10 to 15 people trying to sell an idea or sell a, a concept and yet right. when they're being educated or supported to speak in front of those rooms they're being given the tools that use for a large-scale conference right. they're very different tools i think so right yeah fascinating right. yeah and then um one little nugget that he referenced was the idea of you need to strip away the barriers between mm. you and your audience and he was talking about performance yeah more than anything else but what it what dawned on me was the idea that um jargon whether it's your own company jargon mm -hmm. or industry jargon or you know people get tricksy with naming products yeah. <laughs> and 
and ultimately what you're doing there, it, when you're not speaking as a human, even if it's a scientific or a technical product, I think jargon can really get in the way of conveying your story, conveying yeah. your narrative, conveying your message. Why is your product or service important? That, that for me, jargon is one of the barriers that we need to. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a study, I can't remember what, what the study is. I've, I've got it somewhere, but there was a study that said that if you, um, the more, you know, billion dollar words, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> uh, that you use, the, the more you try and show off and be flashy with your language um, to demonstrate your intellect, the more your audience is actually going to think, well, this person's hiding something. I think the, 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 mm. the heart of it is the simpler, the cleaner, the easier the language is to understand, the more intelligent the speaker sounds. So right. let that be a lesson to all of us. You know, if you want to sound smart, keep it simple. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, particularly, uh, this is like my... F- I'm, this is my soapbox of the week, actually. Um, you know, if, if you're talking tech, technical jargon and you're not orienting your audience towards the business problem that you solve, mm. regardless of how sophisticated your algorithms or your, you know, whatever are behind your solutions, if you're not talking about what your stuff actually helps your clients accomplish, you could, they're going to get lost. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there we are. Another story conversation yes. down. Another, sort of... another, another season. Another season, another show. <laughs> Here we go. So we've got more coming up, um, as right. usual. So keep, keep coming back for more. Um, and in the meantime, if you would like to reach out to us and contact us, you can... Uh, find us at Griffin and Skeggs Collaborative or at Iambic Creative, the details of which are in the show notes. We're here for your marketing, branding, design, story, narrative, storytelling, and work- workshop music. Needs. Don't forget oh, music. Yeah, I still do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, why you have me around. Yeah. Okay, we'll see you next time. Bye bye.